All right, would you take your Bible and go to Hebrews chapter number 6, if you would. I want to encourage you to be back tonight. I won't necessarily maybe take time in the second hour uh, to discuss, but tonight uh, we're going to have a bit of a special service, a bit of a training time, a bit of an enlisting time uh, for our True Purpose Sunday coming up next week. We've got some things we need uh, as far as food and meal prep, and so we'll have that. We do that oftentimes with a big day. We need uh, hamburger buns and things like that, but most importantly in that service, we'll be talking about how you are going to be involved, Lord willing, and I know I say that without a question. I'm saying you will be involved, and I hope that's true uh, in the evangelization process next week, and so we're going to do the invitation a little different um, this next set, uh, Sunday on True Purpose Sunday where we try to engage you and uh, with your guests. And you say, oh, that's scary. I thought I was just going to get them here to hear the gospel. They will hear the gospel and they will have an opportunity to be saved in service. But the primary reason we're going to have a meal after the service is so that you can sit with them and ask questions and, and uh, continue to drive that point home. So be back tonight. We'll have a bit of a training time to, uh, to do that. I'm actually going to give you my text for next Sunday's more, uh, message. And so you'll know what I'm going to be preaching. You'll know what to pray over. You'll know what to prepare over and maybe what questions might come. And so be a part of that, if you would, tonight in the evening service. So Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 9, we do have to back up just a little bit. And sometimes that's necessary, especially the more complex a book is. Um, We did cover a couple of these verses, only briefly. I think we covered three or four of the verses we're going to look at again. Uh, But we need the context in order to get through the rest of chapter 6 and into chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a fun one. Chapter 7, we get to meet Melchizedek and uh, go over some of the details of the mystery that that individual is. And uh, we'll discuss a couple things with that. So Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 9. If you're just joining us this morning, uh, maybe you're a guest or uh, visiting with us in town, we do verse-by-verse study uh, through different books of the Bible. We've done most of Paul's epistles. We're now into the book of Hebrews and uh, we are six chapters deep, and it has been a doozy. It's a good book. It's a hard book. There's a lot of things to learn, and uh, you got to pay attention on purpose. And I was just telling the sound guys back there, the book of Hebrews, There's, I'm yet to come to a chapter where I feel like, okay, this one's going to be an easy one. And I don't mean that in a, in a disrespectful way at all. It's just a deep book. And uh, every chapter is going to have to be digested. And really there are blocks of teaching in each chapter that you can't, it's not one of those books and you shouldn't ever do this, but it's not one of those books. And it's not one of those studies where you can kind of zone out for two verses and then know where we're at. Um, if you fall off the wagon, like for one or two verses, you're not going to have any concept of where it's going. And uh, so make sure you try to stay engaged and I'll try to speak in a way that can keep you engaged, but let's go after it. Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 9, you'll recognize some of these verses. It says, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and the things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Uh, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. And so the author here is simply saying, hey, God has bigger plans for you uh, than simply just being saved. He talks about how the rain falls on the ground and the ground's supposed to absorb the rain and then it's supposed to bring forth fruit. And uh, the author, again, is admonishing them in the earlier part of this chapter to, to, to grasp and go on, uh, to grasp the, the basic things, the, the rudiment things, the, the first principles, as it were, in the beginning of chapter number six. And then let's move on into deeper things. We shouldn't have to relay the foundation of, of baptism and of repentance and of the laying on of hands, and that's the first couple verses of the verse or of this chapter. And then in verse number 12, he kind of he, he there's a call to action. Look at verse 12. 
that ye be not slothful. He says, don't be lazy about this. God desires to create in you the image of Christ. He desires to bring you on the process of sanctification. He desires to bring you into deeper obedience. Uh, the author again says it this way, I'm persuaded of better things for you. Um, I, you're supposed to be growing in grace, and so don't be slothful. But followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, the reason we had to back up to this verse is there's a big pivot that just happened. Um, the author's going to go into talking about the Hebrews' heritage, about their forerunners, as it were. He's going to talk about Abraham and how Abraham received promises, but he wasn't slothful about those promises. He was obedient in those promises, and then God brought the blessing through his obedience. And so he's setting the groundwork for us to be able to see uh, some, th- some things that the Bible wants to teach us about being obedient. And uh, when God gives us a promise, most of the time that promise promise is predicated on our obedience. There are all kinds of promises that God gives us that require us to have a part in action. Uh, The same thing is true in saving faith. Um, There's no work involved, but there's obedience involved. You can't be saved just because you were born into the church. There has to be a moment where you obey the promises that God has given you and you accept by faith uh, through that grace, uh, the saving faith that's going to be imparted to you. But here he is using the example of those who've come before. Look at it again in verse number 12. Be not, uh, uh, that you be not slothful, but followers of them. Now, we don't even know who them are yet, but we will. But followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. Now, there's a couple of verses that need to stick together, but I'm going to have to break them down slowly. So we may back up and read them again. But here he's saying, hey, I want you to follow the example of, and the first person he gives is Abraham. And that God had given Abraham promises, and he gave him promises that were based upon God's nature and character, not based upon anything else. So like, for example, I can give you a promise Um, hey, listen, if uh, this person gets elected into the White House, then our taxes are going to go down. Now, that promise is based upon something that I can't control. And so I can't promise, I I don't even know if I can fulfill that promise. But here's what the Bible's saying about Abraham is that God made a promise to Abraham, not based on anyone else, but based on himself. And God's nature does not change. Other people's nature can change. Other people who say, hey, listen, as long as I'm here next week, I promise you I'll give you a hundred bucks. Well, what if I'm not here next week? What if I can't be here next week? What if I'm dead between now and next week? But the, 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 the sentence structure that's being given here in verse 13 is that God promised by himself these things to Abraham. Look at verse 13 again. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, there was no greater authority that God could swear upon. He swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless thee and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So here's what God said. God gave a promise to Abraham based on himself and the fact that he doesn't change. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. If you'll obey, I will bless you and bless the world through your lineage. And God did indeed bless Abraham because Abraham did indeed obey. Now, what is he trying to say in the whole of the chapter? He's saying, Jewish people, follow your leaders. Follow the people that you have elevated almost to a God level of status that, hey, Abraham got these promises, but those promises weren't based on Abraham. They were sworn upon a greater person. That's God. And God kept those promises. Now, verse 15. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promises for men verily swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Now, oh, what's he saying? So let me, let me break it down. Let me pull verse 16 out by itself. He says, hey, when there's a conflict between you and a brother, um, an oath will settle that conflict, right? We totally get that, that we settle the terms, we agree on the contract, we, you know, me and, and uh, brother Davin over here, we, we agree upon that and that's the end of strife. Verse 16 again. 
For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them the end of strife. Verse 17, wherein, so you get it how it works in, the man, in man's relationship. Now let's get how it works in God. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. So he says, hey, if you and Davin can make an agreement and that's the end of the issue, he says, listen, God made an agreement with Abraham. He would bless the entire world. And he didn't just seal it with a handshake or based upon the nature of man. He sealed it with a promise, with a covenant, with an oath. Look at verse 17 again. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel. God wanted to show how much he doesn't change. That's immutability. How much his counsel, how much his commands, how much his promises don't change. He confirmed it with an oath, verse 18, that by two immutable things. Well, what are the two immutable things? This is a hard chapter to kind of understand what he's saying. Verse 18 is telling us this, that by two immutable things. Well, God's unchanging counsel and God's unchanging oath. So there are two things God swore upon, his unchanging counsel and his unchanging oath, in that which is it was impossible for God to lie. So God swore to Abraham, he gave him his counsel and he gave him an oath that, hey, if you'll follow me, I will bless the world through you. And through obedience, God did indeed bless him because it is impossible for God to lie. Um, might have a strong consolation uh, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. He said, listen, we have a strong comfort, that consolation, and a strong hope because God made a promise to Abraham based not upon me and Davin shaking hands, but based upon the fact that God cannot lie. And God, when he makes a promise, and he made a promise to Abraham that Christ would come through his lineage, and God made that promise based on his counsel that can't change, based on his oath that cannot change. And therefore, we have a refuge to run into knowing that if God made us a promise, he's going to keep his promise. Okay, now I know that's a lot. We just read a bunch of verses and, and kind of putting that all together might help us. So let's, let's back up just a second. Now that we kind of understand it, let's back up and look at verse 16 and read through verse 18. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it in an oath that by two immutable things, that unchanging counsel and unchanging oath, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. We have a comfort now who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. So we know that God in his counsel and in his oath cannot lie. That what God tells us in his word and promises us through the oath of scripture, he will keep because he can swear by no greater than himself, right? You think about the constitution, right? The constitution is signed by great men. Well, those great men can't defend the constitution. And we're seeing some of that in our, our current day. But God made us promises and God gave us rights, as it were, if you want to use the constitution as a parallel, God gave us rights that he will confirm. He will defend. He by himself, he can swear by no greater. So he gave us his oath and it cannot change. So now let's look at verse number 19. We're going to go somewhere with this. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. We can run to that refuge. We can run with that consolation and comfort, knowing that we have an anchor to our soul and that God does not lie. His counsel does not change because his person does not change. Think about it this way, and I'll sum it up this way. In the Old Testament, the Bible says, uh, because I am God, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. The only reason Israel wasn't consumed in the Old Testament is because God didn't change. Not because they always kept their side of the bargain or always kept up their, uh, their, their uh, necessary obedience, but because God did not change, they were not consumed. Look at verse 19 which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into that within the veil. 
So there's some really beautiful things happening right here. He's introducing the veil, which we'll see more in uh, uh, the coming chapters. I think chapter 8 and chapter 10 talk about going within the veil. And so what he's saying is, hey, we are invited. Christ, our forerunner, went into the veil. Well, what's the veil? Well, the veil is what separated the presence of, of man from the presence of God. We know that when Christ died, darkness was on the face of the earth and the veil was rent in twain. We were allowed to come in. In Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to learn that that veil is a representation of the flesh of Christ being torn so that we might have access and return to, to the the presence of God. But here's what he's saying. We have hope and an anchor to the soul, knowing that he went in before us and that we get to go in behind him. That you and I have confidence that when God makes us a promise, he does not change. When he makes an oath, just like Abraham, he will not fail that oath. He cannot swear by anything greater than himself, but he swore by himself and by his counsel. And those things are immutable. And so we are allowed into the presence of God because of the person of Jesus, okay? And that should bring us hope and the anchor to our soul, both sure and steadfast, as verse 19 says. So let's pick up in verse number 20. And I think it gets a little bit easier to kind of digest just the sentence structure, generally speaking, from verse 20 beyond. He says... Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, so we know who the forerunner is, it's Christ going in before us, made in high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus went before us, making a way into the presence of God. He is a priest uh, established forever, not through the line of Aaron. Now, if you're just joining us, you don't have the background of chapters 5 and 6, where we already talked about the priesthood of Aaron, and that Aaron would make sacrifice every year for the people, and Aaron had compassion on the people because he had to have compassion on the people because he himself was a sinner. So when he would make sacrifice, his compassion was, was necessary. His compassion wasn't rooted in any grace. It was rooted in the fact that, hey, Bo's a sinner, and I'm a sinner, and we got to make sacrifice, so we're doing it together. But Jesus, as a better high priest, was not a sinner. His compassion was rooted in grace, that he didn't, he didn't have to uh, have compassion on us. He was sinless, and yet he, as a better high priest, goes in and makes sacrifice through the veil for us. But we learn something, that his priesthood is not after the order of Aaron. Now, let me back up and give you some context. If you don't know who Aaron is, um, Aaron is the first high priest chosen from the tribe of, of uh, Levi. And uh, back when Moses uh, was called by God in the Exodus and all that happened, God selected the tribe of Levi, <coughs> excuse me, to be the people that would associate man, the rest of the tribes of, Jew, of Israel, to the presence of God. And that only from the house of Aaron could one go into the veil to make sacrifice once a year. And so only the household of Aaron could be the high priest uh, from the book of Exodus. And then only the tribe of Levi could minister to the things in the temple. And so Jesus, he comes out of the tribe of Judah. He doesn't come out of the tribe of Levi. So how in the world is he going to be a priest? And the priesthood of Aaron, every, every generation would pass from one to the next because the, the priests would die. But Jesus is said to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Look at that verse 20 again. Whether therefore the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We talked about him just briefly. We get to develop him a little bit more today. But let me say this about who this person is. Do not get so caught up on the mystery of Melchizedek that you miss the meaning of Melchizedek. Um, we're going to have to define today, and I'll give you my opinion, on who in the world Melchizedek actually is in the Old Testament. He's a very mysterious uh, uh, figure in the Old Testament, and I'm just going to say this on purpose. And sometimes we get so caught up on the mystery, we miss the meaning. Why is Melchizedek even relevant to the story? And for that, we have to go back to Psalm chapter 110. Go to Psalm chapter 110 if you would. There's only two times you find Melchizedek in the Old Testament. 
One is in Genesis chapter 14, and uh, we'll see some of that just briefly. We won't go back there. Most of Genesis 14 is going to be recounted for us in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 7. But we're going to go back and we're going to see Melchizedek, and I don't want you to be confused about that. Let me say this, and I'll illustrate it this way. How many of you, and maybe I'm the only person, okay, so just raise your hand and help me out if, if this is you. How many of you ever, have ever had a theological debate with someone who knows nothing about Scripture at all, It could be a totally unchurched person. Um, Most of the time, I'll be honest with you, it's some like crazy, like strung out guy that wants to have a debate about Melchizedek. How many of you ever had that debate with some just absolute off the rocker person? That's normally like the trump card because uh, in my estimation, they feel like, oh, Melchizedek, nobody knows anything about him, but I'm going to pretend to. Don't, that's not Melchizedek. You're missing the whole point of Melchizedek. He is not some weird shadowy figure in the Old Testament, but he is a mysterious figure on purpose. So we meet Melchizedek in Genesis 14. We also find another moment that he appears in prophecy um, tucked into Psalm 110. So let's, let's go there. Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Um, now this is obviously talking about Christ. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn. Now remember, God swears by no greater than himself, right? The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. He's not going to break his promises. Those are immutable oaths, right? And will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound uh, the heads over many countries. He shall drink the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up uh, the head. Now, now real quick, something important is you have this appearance in Genesis 14 that we're going to read about in Hebrews 4. Then you have this prophecy in Psalm 110, and it's this strange promise to the house of David, the tribe of Judah, that through Judah there is going to come a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, And this is what the author of Hebrews is leaning into. There is is a a promise that exists. There's a person that appears in Genesis, and then there's a promise that exists in Psalm chapter 110 that we are going to have a priest come from David who's not just going to be a king, but he's going to be a priest forever. Now, what's happening here? Let's kind of... I debated, and man, I I worked it back and forth. I talked to a couple different people, tried to get an understanding of this. Let me give it to you this way. What is Melchizedek? If you've ever driven in the woods, and maybe you haven't, so this illustration might not mean anything to you, but if you've ever been driving in the woods and there's a road, this is just how I see it. There's a road that appears through the woods. And you've ever wondered like, where's that road come from? Where's that road go? And it appears one time and then you keep driving through the woods and then, then it appears again. And you're like, where is that road going to? And where did that road come from? Now I want you to think, That's the priesthood of Melchizedek, right? In in Exodus, this road is established. The sacrificial system is in place. The children of Levi are going to be the priests. The sons of Aaron are going to be the high priest. This is the road that's going on. But back in Genesis 14, there was like, there was this priest already before the sacrificial system, before the Jews were even a people. Abraham hadn't even come away. And there's already a priest unto God before the Jewish people are even selected or established. There's Melchizedek and he's a priest of the Lord. And who is he? And then the road just keeps going. And then, boop, through the trees, we see Psalm 110. And it's like, there's another road over there. There's another priesthood over there. We got Aaron, and, and this is so important. And, and it's the, one of the reasons that the author addresses Aaron, because they're so stuck on this road. But 
There's another road, and and where does it go, and where does it come from? Well, that's the priesthood after which Jesus will be established, the perfect high priest forever as both king and high priest. But the scarcities of of details is part of the importance of who Melchizedek is. We don't need to know a bunch about that road on the other side of the trees. We just need to know back in Genesis it exists. In Psalms, it's promised. And then in Hebrews, we get this like blown open view of like, Oh, that's why Melchizedek existed. That's what this promise is about because, and here's why, this road isn't taking us anywhere. This road cannot make us righteous. Aaron is hopeless to save us. The priesthood is hopeless to save us. There actually needs to be a disannulling of this this line of Aaron, and you're going to see those words in a few moments. So the whole purpose of, of Melchizedek's kind of line isn't to totally understand it, but to know that it was sufficient to do what this road could not do, to do what the law and Aaron could not bring us into. So now let's jump into Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings, blessed him. So that story we know back from Genesis chapter number 14, after the battle that Abraham had fought to bring back Lot and some of his family uh, that were captured from a confederation of kings, uh, he meets this man, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, in verse number two, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation, the king of righteousness. So here's the names of Melchizedek. Here's what his names mean. By interpretation, the king of righteousness. After that also, king of Salem, which is king of peace. So there's a lot going on here. There's a couple of things to really address. So I'm going to try to take them one at a time. Number one, this is the second time, and I'm not just hobby horsing here, but this is the second time we find tithing predating the law and the Jewish system, okay? And some would uh, propagate that tithing is, the, uh, is just law and that you're, you know, it's a paying of taxes to the Hebrew people. Well, again, Melchizedek pre-exists the law and uh, he's a totally different road than the law. And tithing, what you find in the story of Abraham, is just a grateful response to what God has done. You find Jacob doing the exact same thing, pre-law, saying, hey, there was a bridge from me to you, and I'm going to give you a tenth of what I have. And Abraham to Melchizedek, I'm going to give you a tenth of what I had. He's not paying taxes and not giving to the Jewish system or the priest. He's simply having a grateful heart in response to God. Um, but one thing is, is uh, well, let's, let's, jump into, uh, let's jump into verse number two. I want you to see who this man is, at least in my opinion. Look at verse number two. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation the king of righteousness. So who is Melchizedek? The question that we want to answer. Let me say this. None of us can know for sure. Okay. Let me say this also. We don't have to agree um, on this. Um, There are good men who would disagree with me on this and that's okay. Brother Hunter does not believe that Melchizedek is a Christophany. I personally believe that Melchizedek is a Christophany. And you know what? Me and Brother Hunter are going to fight after church today. You laugh because it's not necessary. we're going to get to heaven and find out like, oh, there's Jesus and there's Melchizedek. Oh man, I was wrong. And then brother Hunter can come over and make fun of me and that's fine. But we don't have to agree on everything and we don't have to argue about the things we don't agree on, especially when they're things like this. But here's the reason that I believe him to be uh, to one degree or or another an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Well, number one, um, he's called the king of righteousness, okay? The king of righteousness, in fact, Hebrews chapter one, verse number eight, keep your finger there and go back. Hebrews chapter one, verse number eight. We're going to find this is somewhat of a title already given to Christ in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse number 8, it says, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter or a reigning of righteousness. 
uh, is a scepter of thy kingdom. So the king of righteousness, and Christ is considered the ruler of righteousness. Number two, back in verse number two of Hebrews 7, he's also called the king of Salem, which is the king of peace, which is exactly the title given in prophecy of Christ in Isaiah chapter number nine, the prince of peace, uh, that child that would come. We keep reading in verse number three. Uh, here are the attributes of Melchizedek. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. So I don't know how you get to a human being who has no father, no mother, no beginning of days and no end of days, no point of origin, no lineage or offspring, no end or beginning, uh, and he's made like the Son of Man that abideth forever. So again, I'm not sure, and if you want to disagree, that's totally fine. It certainly doesn't matter. All we know is that that road exists, and that's the road through the priesthood that we would be saved because the Aaronic priesthood could not bring us redemption. Now, verse number four. Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of his or of the spoils. So listen, Melchizedek was way better than Abraham. Doesn't that sound like a lot of what the author of Hebrews is trying to talk about with Christ? It would be strange in my estimation for the entirety of the book to be that Jesus is better than this person. And then somewhere in the middle of the book, he say, well, Random guy is also better than this person. It seems to be, at least in my understanding, tracking along with the point the author is trying to make, that Christ is better. And so Abraham gives one-tenth of his possessions to this king. Uh, Verse number five, it says, Verily, they that are the sons of Levi, who have received the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they came out of the loins of Abraham. And so he's going to prove a point here about the superiority of Melchizedek, that, hey, in this priesthood, the people under this law, they had a commandment to take the tithes from the people. But I want you to notice that Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Look at verse 6. But he whose descent is not counted of them, so talking about Melchizedek, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. So again, listen to this carefully. He's saying this priesthood was fine, though insufficient. He said, and this priesthood required the tithe, but if Melchizedek is better than this priesthood, then shouldn't he get it as well? Shouldn't Abraham, by by simple uh, uh, attributing of worth and worship, surrender to Melchizedek? And so again, I would say that if uh, if we under the law were considered to have to give by mandate this 10%, how then would we ever give less to Jesus if Christ is better and more worthy than the sacrificial system? It, it seems a very uh, foolish idea, at least in my interpretation. Verse number seven, and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. So Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. God provides for his people. Look at verse number eight. Uh, and here, men that die receive tithes. So that ironic line. But there he received them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. So again, there's a couple things to prove there. One, it's hard to think that Melchizedek is forever alive and he does not possess the deity of Christ. I I, I see them as one and the same. How does someone who lived forever not be either the father or the son? I I don't know how you would would adjudicate that. Verse number nine. And as I uh, may so say, so he would say, it would be similar to him saying, one might even say, Levi also who received tithes paid tithes to Abraham. So it's, it's a little bit of a, not a, I don't think it's a word play, but he's kind of trying to present a picture. He says, hey, listen, 
under Aaron, these tithes were required, but even Aaron paid tithes to Abraham, being from his family, and Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. It's almost like the nesting dolls. He says, hey, listen, if Abraham, who's greater than Aaron, Abraham gave here and he gave to him, ultimately it's all about this other priest line. Look at verse 5. For he was yet, Aaron is yet in the loins of his father, Abraham, when Melchizedek met him. Uh, Now we got to lean in close. We're getting to the crooks of the matter, and I think we have enough time to get through it. Verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood. So don't miss, don't get caught up on the mystery of Melchizedek and miss the meaning of Melchizedek, which is verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? That's the whole meaning of Melchizedek. He says, if this line of Aaron was sufficient, then why would there ever be a need for another one? Why would there ever need to be another high priest? Why would there ever need to be another testament? Why would there ever need to be another oath? Why would there ever need to be another priest or a sacrifice if this was sufficient? Well, the answer is there was a need because this was not sufficient. All right. And that's the point he's making. Verse 12, for the priesthood changed. That's an important word. It means to be transformed. It means to become of a different nature and purpose. Transform. For the, the priesthood changed. There is made of necessity a change also of the law. Now, here's where we got to be careful. And to be honest with you, it's really hard to know for sure which one he's talking about. It seems more comfortable, at least in my interpretation, to to assume he's speaking of this ironic line that this law threw him. Some would suggest, though I think it's a little dangerous, though not not completely error-ridden, that he's talking about the whole law. Um, You can get to an Andy Stanley level of heresy really quick. Like, oh, we just unhitched from the Old Testament. We don't need it. That's a complete, you know, unnecessary thing. No, If, if anything is changing in the law, it changes to what Paul had already taught us, that it becomes a schoolmaster to teach us to Christ. But there's going to be a couple of words that are a little uncomfortable to deal with. One is being changed. Another is disannulled when he's talking about what happens to the law. So keep that in mind. Um, I think the safest interpretation would be that this, hey, ironic line is what's being changed. Maybe not so much that the law is being thrown away, because that's certainly not the case. Look at verse 12. Let's read it again. For the priesthood being changed, so that's definitely talking about Aaron, there was made of necessity a, a change also of the law. For he of whom these things were spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man giveth attendance at the altar. Do you know what he said? The ironic line, the promise was given to a completely different tribe of Judah that they, they don't even attend to the things of sacrifice. And yet there was a promise made that this would someday be changed and given to a different tribe. Well, that's Judah and that's Jesus. And that's the priesthood of Melchizedek. Okay. So you kind of got those things in place. Look at verse 14. For it is, uh, uh, forgive me, for it is uh, evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest. Now that word similitude means after the same manner. So it's go back to the picture of the road in the woods and you see it in Genesis. Man, there's a, there's a priest already before the Jewish system. Who is that guy? He's receiving tithes. Okay, great. Then you go through and then man, Psalm 1 tender in the life of David, there's a promise that a whole nother tribe outside of Levi is going to get the priesthood forever. Okay. I don't understand all that. And then you keep trucking along. And now after the similitude of Melchizedek further down the road, you see Christ made a priest forever after Melchizedek. And now there's going to be a change. And this sacrificial system now needs to change because it couldn't do 
what it was set up to do in the first place. So now let's look at verse 16. Um, well, verse 15, and it is yet more, far more evident that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment. And don't think about that in terms of like a sinful, but like a fleshly. Uh, you have a, a familial line of Levi, and Jesus is not made a priest because he's in the family line, but because he's, he's from the Father, who is made not after the law of the carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So again, Christ has established the final and forever high priest that Melchizedek would bring, but that Aaron could not. Look at verse 18. For there is, a ver- there is verily a disannulling. Now again, that's where it becomes really scary. If you're like, yep, the Old Testament is disannulled. No, here's what the word disannul means. It means to refuse to recognize the validity of something. So if someone walks up with a contract today and says, I own 1960 Ming Avenue, here's my, you know, here's my land deed. We would all disannul that. We'd say, no, that's, that's not how that works. That's not valid. We don't, we don't acknowledge that. And, and to me, I don't think that's talking about the Old Testament. I do think so far, and we will again talk about the Aaronic priesthood. So far, we've been talking about this line, this road of Aaron. There's a disannulling that, hey, this wasn't enough. This is disannulled, not the Old Testament, but this priesthood. Verse 18, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment um, going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof, that this was not sufficient. This could not take us anywhere. Verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. Remember how we talked in chapter six, that he is the forerunner that went in through the veil for us, that he made a way for us. And now there is a way where there was never a way and that Aaron's law and Aaron's uh, line could never take us into. Verse number 20, and inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. So just, he was given an oath. We, we, there's something really important here. Aaron was never given the oath of a priesthood. He was given the office of a priesthood, but he was never given an oath by God that he would be the high priest. Abraham was given the oath, remember that? And now after that oath, he has made Jesus a priest forever after Melchizedek. And those oaths are immutable, right? So you kind of see those things being tied back together in the author's intent. Look at verse 21. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath, by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so Jesus, he is affirming the strength of the oath God made to Abraham is the strength of the oath God made to Christ through the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he fulfilled giving the blessing and he has fulfilled that Jesus is forever the high priest. Verse 22, by so much, so by this oath and its fulfillment, was Jesus made a surety of a better testament? And I love that word, surety. Now, you'll, you'll recognize that word if you read the book of Proverbs, right? It says, you know, don't be surety for thy friend. What surety is, like a cosigner. Think about it like this. It's a guarantee-er. So if Brother Reese and I go down to the bank and Brother Reese needs a loan and Brother Reese doesn't have the credit for it, I can be the guarantee of that loan. I can cosign with him that I guarantee this is going to get paid. Now, that's not wise. The Bible is, is opposed to that in a financial sense. But the Bible just said that Jesus is the surety of our testament. He is the one who guarantees it will be fulfilled. He is the testator. He is the one who says, nope, that law I gave of grace and that offer of salvation, God gave an oath and made me the priest. And as the priest, I make surety that this oath will be fulfilled and that this is a better testament. Verse 23, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. You see that? 
Generation after generation, there have to be another priest because they would die and they would die and they would die and they would die. Then you'd have to wait and hope the next priest is a better priest or that he's even a good priest, right? But notice what this, but this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Now I'm going to stop right there and I'm actually going to use verse 24 to me to, as a, as a it, it, it seems to affirm to me Christ and Melchizedek being very similar, very, very much so the same because the priesthood of Melchizedek is, is credited the same. He's forever. And now you're a priest after that same order. It is forever. So we'll have to stop there. There's still more. It's a, it's a big chapter. Uh, but again, don't leave here with butterflies in your stomach on the mystery of Melchizedek. See the meaning of Melchizedek, that this, this road was not sufficient. This road we don't know a whole lot about, but we knew enough to know that it was there. It was, it was seen in, in Genesis 14. It was promised in Psalm 10, 110, and it was reaffirmed, <coughs> excuse me, by the author of Hebrews that Christ is a priest forever in Judah after the order of Melchizedek. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed.